Hello everyone, a journey through Aussie pop isn't done with the story of Bardo just yet. Are we, Robbie Molinari? Gavin Scott, in the words of Rock Melons and Denny Hines, it's not over till it's over. But before we proceed, a quick recap. So far in our Bardo journey, we have spoken to both Belinda Chapel and Sally Polly Ronas, and they shared their memories of being part of Australia's first reality TV music group, Bardo. Next up to reflect on their time in the pop stars girl group is Katie Underwood. And this episode is going to be a little bit different from the two parts that you've just mentioned because, as most of you will know, Katie left Bardot after their first album. And so we're going to spend some time talking about the various projects she was involved with afterwards, including the top 10 single she had with Disco Montego, Beautiful. Katie Underwood always stood out in Bardo, and not just because of her cropped bright red hair. While some of the members had backgrounds in stage, dancing and modelling, Katie was a club kid with no plans to be a pop star. I remember Katie had that 90s raver look and she, along with each of the other girls that made the final five, all brought their own element of style to the group. But Katie was no stranger to the music industry, having had some prior experience providing vocals on an international dance track. Yeah, under the name Katie Ashley, she contributed vocals to the song Don't Be Afraid by Italian DJ and producer Claudio Guisani. Is that right, Robbie? You say it. That's good enough. Claudio Guisani. Thank you. Uh, otherwise known as Terra Firma. Let's have a listen. You can hear the complete story of how that track came about in the full interview in the bonus material, and we'll tell you how you can access that at the end of the episode. But for now, let's hear from Katie about going from a trance tune to auditioning for pop stars and the early days of Bardot. And she's going to tell us how it was a friend who suggested she attend the casting call in the first place, and what her reaction to the idea was. So I'd come back to Melbourne, I was all bolstered, I'm like, yep, going to make more dance music, that sounds like a good thing. And I also wanted to sing jazz. So I'd been performing with a jazz band for about six months um, and we were just starting to get some residencies, which for those who work in live music knows that's the bee's knees, you know, you want a regular gig. Auditioning for pop stars, again, was something that not that I really thought to do because I didn't like pop music really and I don't often like still a lot of pop music. It's not my first go-to, but she knew I could sing and sing really well and that I was a big personality and she said, oh, they're looking for like the Australian Spice Girls I've seen the ad in Women's Day or whatever, you should go and audition. And <laughs> my first response to her was, why would I audition for a pop band? I don't even like pop music. <laughs> She's like, I think you'd be really good at it and you should just you should just try it. I'm like, mm, okay. That is the God's honest truth. And the rest, well, I'm a very competitive person. So once I was in it, I mean, you know, if you're going to do it, <laughs> So once I started, well, then I then I just thought, well, I want to give this my best shot. And then when I got invited to go to Sydney, and there were like 25 of us from Melbourne, I'm like, oh, free trip to Sydney. 
it's like, it was what it was. I was 24, right? I've never been to Sydney. Cool, we'll get to fly to Sydney. This is amazing. And then we get up there and there's like 100 girls and they're all like, I don't know, what I would consider like professional trained entertainers. They've done the dance school and the singing school and the dramatic arts. And there I am with my raver pants on and, you know, a few jazz sing- sings in my repertoire. And I just thought, you know what, every day just do my best. That's all you can do. And that's all I did. I just thought, oh, I can make it through another day. Cool. If I get home, had a trip to Sydney. But then I got in. All the stuff you talked about probably worked in your favour, standing out and being different and having that edge. Yeah, it, it really did. And I think actually the other major thing that worked in my favour, and I saw this play out, was the fact that I wasn't really set on being in the band. A lot of girls were there with the hope that, oh, this will be finally my big break. You know, maybe they've been working in the industry already professionally for five years, much more experienced than me. There were some truly incredible vocalists in that process. However, because they had so much expectation on themselves, the stress broke them. So I saw these incredible singers and performers just crumble under the pressure and then they weren't able to learn the steps or the song or whatever would happen and they just wouldn't be at their best because they were too nervous. And me, I was like, don't matter other way. So I, I think I managed to stay fairly relaxed and that is what helped me get through. I can honestly say that the five girls that ended up in the band were not the five absolute best singers in that audition process. But what I can say is that it takes more than being a singer to make it in a pop band. And what they were auditioning for in this process were women that not only could sing, could dance, had a look about them, but could deal with the pressure. And that was really important and that became crucial as we went on because once we started, the pressure did not let up for, well, a year and a half for me. It just didn't stop. So when you sat down before even getting in and they gave to the the 10 of you or however many it was, here's the contract. And if you want to be in, you have to sign the contract. What did you think about that? I didn't know what to think about it, really. I'd never seen a, I don't think I'd ever seen a contract, full stop, let alone a music industry contract. But it was clear there was no negotiating. The only reason to have a lawyer look at the contract, which I did as required, was to understand fully what it was I was signing. It wasn't about, well, I'll figure out whether I'm going to sign it or not. That was never a question. It was certainly made clear that it was a pretty crappy deal. But the question is, well, it's not about the deal that's in front of you. It's about, do you think this is worth the opportunity? Is it worth the sacrifice for the possible success and opportunity this will bring you? And at that point in my life at 24, I thought, yeah, it's not a great deal, but it is a good opportunity and let's see what happens. And you roll the dice. Which is what they were counting on. Of course. So during your time in Bardo, do you feel like the group was looked after sufficiently? Uh, We were when the TV show was on. Do you mean financially or emotionally? Emotionally and support and I guess this is what we're going to expect of you and let's prepare you for that. Or was it like, there you go. No, no, I think during the run of the TV show, so you have to understand there were three major components to the pop star slash Bardo machine. There was the television production company, Screen Time, and then therefore their whole, the film crew itself, that were with us every day. And then you've got the record company and then you've got our management, which was always a bit hokey because the management were employed by the TV and production company. 
while the TV show was on, they had a wonderful woman called Anna Kiprius, who not only was our dance trainer choreographer, but kind of like a den mother for us. And she was key in helping to get our vision clear about who we were in the band, but also make sure that we had someone to turn to. And I guess just the relationship that we had with each other, we understood that we had to get to know each other quickly because um, if we didn't form a genuine bond, it was never going to last. And even management was very clear about that. And they said, you know, most brands don't break up because they're not doing well. They break up from the inside out. And that's generally what happens in any any band if they break up, which obviously played out. But yeah, so, but then as soon as the TV show finished, all this structure disappeared and we weren't accommodated anymore. So then suddenly we're like, okay, now you're still on a shit wage and now you've got to pay rent and buy makeup and do, and you know, pay for your own life and show up and be a pop star on this shoestring budget we're going to give you. Yeah, then it got harder financially and socially and and then you're just like any other band, you know, working too much, not earning enough, late nights, lots of travel, and it's gruelling. There's there's no other word for it. You know, we went from zero to hero overnight as far as what was expected of us. It was gruelling. There were no days off. There's no holidays. <laughs> it just... It just, it just wasn't. And was there anyone to go to if you were having a tough time or? No. No? Not really. I mean, the management, I, I, look, with respect to them and, and they they were good. They meant well. We had a team of three, actually. I think they probably liked to think that they were there for us, but it was, I mean, it's insane when you think, oh, gee, who should we get to manage an all-girl band? Oh, yeah, three middle-aged blokes. That sounds about right. That will work. Yeah, yeah. So no, there was no there was no relatability. Um, I think if I could go back and redo it, I would have installed at least one woman in the management team. I think that would have been good, but we can't go back now. So no, look, they were doing their best. I think they expected it to be big, but even even the people who'd said it's going to be very big underestimated how much it blew up the entire music industry and television industry. And the concept of this insane amount of fame, your Beatle mania level amount of fame that we had um, overnight, I think even that took them by surprise. So we were all just kind of <laughs> flying by the seat of our pants, I think. We've heard some different perspectives on Poison already from both Belinda and Sally, as well as yours and mine, Gavin. But what did Katie think of Bardo's chart-topping debut single? And what was going on with that vocal effect that was put on Katie's voice for her solo bit? Let's find out. I've got you scared. What did you think of Poison as a first single and was it always going to be Poison? I was underwhelmed, but then I also had to remind myself that it was a pop band, so I was going to be underwhelmed by the music and I'd made the decision to be in it, so I just had to choose to enjoy what it was. Yeah, initially I didn't think it was the best choice, but we weren't in charge of the choices. We were in charge of shortlisting the songs, which we had done. But I think like a lot of songs, Poison really came alive once we started putting all our vocals down. You know, the demo was simple, like most demos are. But once we started adding bits and pieces and adding harmonies and adding ad-libs, certainly I did, then it really took on a life of its own. And in fact, 
if I recall, the original melody, main melody line they had for Poison kind of sucked, in my opinion. And so I'm always one to just do other stuff in the harmony. And I'd go, oh, can I just, I just want to try something. Can I try this harmony or that harmony? And so I gave them a couple of options. And so one of the harmonies that I installed ended up becoming what is now the main melody line. And they're like, oh, that works even better. I'm like, good. So yeah, there were little things like that where there was always room to make something a little cooler just by being in it. And I think that's what happened, you know, once you get all the flavors of the different voices of Belinda's voice and Sophie and Sally and Tiffany and myself, it then created its own sound. And I I think that's where it started to flourish and we started to really see the potential of Bardo when we were in the studio and creating the actual music rather than just this TV show that was sort of funny and sort of cringy. You got all the Mel C bits and by that I mean (laughs) the cool ad-libs which you've referenced already. That definitely stands out in Poison and also the production on your voice is quite different from the production on everybody else's voice. Yeah, I don't know why they did that. To this day I'm not sure why they chose to do that. So generally speaking, in any given day, we'd be in the studio from 12 midday to about midnight and we'd be allotted a couple of hours each and people were having various issues around what timings they were being given. And I said, look, I'm happy to be the last person to record every day. I said that means that I can work with everything that's already been put down and I can kind of add my thing. And I was a bit of a night owl anyway. So often I was recording you know, from 8 or 9 p.m. onwards. Yeah, which meant that I had free free reign to kind of do what I'd want. So I'd, I'd, I would do the part that they'd go, okay, Katie, you're gonna, you need to give us this verse or that, whatever. Yeah, and then I kind of became the BV girl because I worked quickly. I guess even at that point, my skill level was like a session singer. They go, well, sing this. You know, I've got a Sharpie. Okay, I'll do that, do the double. I was very efficient. So it was kind of easier to get me to do a lot of the harmonies and I enjoyed that. And then the last reward would be, all right, now I get to do an ad lib run and I'd do a couple of those and obviously the results you hear on various tracks through Bardo. So, yeah, it is interesting actually when I I went back not long ago and and listened to some of the tracks off the second album and, um, yeah, it's very different sound because you don't have that Katie layer, that Katie BB layer in the background. The most people would have realised and it didn't matter, but um, just wasn't there. It was a different sound. Okay, so that was Poison. And Katie featured prominently on the next two Bardo singles as well, didn't she? Yeah, she basically sang the entire lead on the second single, I Should Have Never Let You Go. Let's have a listen. Seems we play the game, but last along the way, somewhere we went wrong. I didn't have a clue, should have And Katie also kicked off these days, setting the tone for Bardo's moody tour de force. For someone who didn't like pop and didn't want to be a pop star, she was actually pretty good at it. Actually, she was very good at it. Katie had that confidence and flair from the get-go. Whether it was natural or the experience she gained from working with Terra Firma, or perhaps it was her days as a clubber, and she also had the moves down pat. Let's go back to Katie now to hear her thoughts on I Should Have Never Let You Go and These Days. Now, I have heard you mention that when it did come to track selection, yes, you the five of you narrowed it down, but there were some tracks that were guaranteed spots on the album. Is that right? 
Correct. That is correct. So they'd done a deal. Case in point was the second single, I Should Never Let You Go, was Tommy Farragher's song. And Tommy Farragher was the American producer that was brought over. So that was the deal that they made with him as part of his package. Similarly, there were other deals made with writers or producers, or some writers would say, oh, you can have my song, but I want to produce it. So with some of them, we had to actually go to their studio and produce it and they wanted to make it up how they wanted to. So so yeah, there were some that we had no choice about, like Poison and uh, Should Never Let You Go. And I think These Days was a shoe in but we all liked These Days, so that wasn't a question. That was a bloody good song anyway. Now, I Should Have Never Let You Go, was that not only guaranteed to be on the album, but was that part of the deal that it needed to be the second single? I Maybe, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that there's no point having a deal like that unless you feel like it's going to get good exposure. And at that point, that kind of urban slash R&B sound was it and a bit in America. But I think uh, it didn't connect as well with Australia because we really weren't in that vibe. So, yeah, I'm not sure that really achieved what they were hoping it was going to achieve uh, musically. The other weird thing was it ended up with me doing most of the lead vocals, which wasn't the original brief. I remember them saying that it was very important to them, this is the producers of the album, that, you know, all the girls got featured, that we were a band of five. It wasn't a lead singer and four backups, you know, it was five individuals contributing. So it was an odd choice. I think we all thought that these days would have been a better follow-up because it was a stronger song and it it featured all of us and fit that brief. Um, So it was a little weird. But, yeah, I I guess that was his condition. It's like, yeah, I'll do the album for this much money or whatever, but you have to use this song and it has to be the second single. So you're assuming that? I am assuming. I don't don't know that for a fact, but I, I do know that it was we had to do that song as a single. Was it contentious? that you were basically the lead on that single? Uh, let's just say it wasn't their favourite song to perform. <laughs> okay, fair enough. They didn't like performing it because it was a bit, yeah, it just wasn't as interactive for the rest of the girls. So it was a bit of a downer. But, you know, looking back, it doesn't really matter now, but it was an odd choice and it did put me in an odd position, which I didn't enjoy. These days, often cited as Bardo's best song. yeah. It was good. I felt like we started to get some credibility loosely with these days because the sound wasn't so completely bubblegum pop anymore. Yeah, it was very freeing for us when the TV show stopped because then we were able to just be a band and that felt better. The video is kind of like looking back at that now. I don't know how often you look back at that now. <laughs> it's kind of a snapshot of when things maybe were perfect in Bardo world. Would that be accurate? Yeah, absolutely. You know, third single, my national tour, funky film clip, good haircuts. I don't know. Yeah, we're all we're all happy. I mean, you know, there were obviously moments in any relationship where it doesn't feel great. But I think most of the pressure, at least when I was in the band, and this is probably contrary to Belinda's experience after I'd left, our issues weren't with each other. Our issues were with the workload in general or the lack of money or not being able to see our family, or just, yeah, just being worked continually, being asked to do literally 100 interviews in a day and then perform that night and then go out with the record company for dinner after that and then wake up at four to get a six o'clock flight and then, like, just on and on and on. That was where most of the tension came from, I think. So if we ever blew up at each other, it wasn't really about each other, if that makes sense. It was just a product of being overworked. 
As we'll hear from Katie shortly, she had every intention of remaining in Bardo, heading to the UK with the rest of the group for promotional work and the initial recording sessions for their second album. She laid down vocals on two tracks, an early version of ASAP and Hit and Run, which would surface on the B-side to Love Will Find A Way sans Katie, and as we heard in the last episode, with Sally's vocals taken off also. But Katie's career path was changed when an offer came to her from inside the Bardo camp. It was suggested that she audition for a revival of musical hair, and she got the part. Katie's going to tell us now about that UK trip, how the opportunity to do hair came about, and what happened when the production fell through. You did record ASAP. Yeah. Was the version that you were on any different from the one that came out other than your vocal? Uh, yes. Yes, they changed the, pro- the production quite a bit, I think. I don't know which one was better. I think it's hard to put a value on it. But it was very different and, I mean, yeah, the sound changes as soon as you take my voice out of it anyway. I preferred the demo version that we did. Yeah, I don't know. I felt like it had more punch. I mean, I don't know. I can't even recall the new ASAP version that much. Yeah, I think the first version was stronger both for a lot of reasons. I think it was stronger vocally and I think it was stronger production-wise and then... It must have been that whoever got on the production here in Australia decided to just make it their own, but I don't know that they did it any favours. And you also recorded Hit and Run, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, I loved working with Kathy Dennis. She was in the studio at the time, sitting next to the producer. So just the opportunity to be in the studio with her and, and have her feedback on my vocal performance or, you know, having questions answered was really great. So I enjoyed that. And there was an odd choice too, musically, because this phrase was being used in the UK to do a hit and run meant like a one night stand, but it wasn't a phrase that we were familiar with in Australia. So I think it's probably a better choice that they didn't use that because I don't think that the Australian people would have got it as much as they were getting it in the UK. Were you happy with the direction things were going in? Yeah, I was happy that we were branching out working with international producers, that they were giving us a fresh sound, um, that we were getting access to better songs. Yeah, I was really excited. We were over in the UK and everything was going great. We had a lot of fun, actually. I remember we were over there for three weeks, I think. Yeah, I think it was one of the first times that we really started to just let our hair down. Well, I mean, I always did, but the other girls were usually very serious. So by the second album, I think people were relaxing a little bit more and I'm pretty sure we went out a couple of times and had some fun and lots of laughs. There were lots of unofficial photos, I recall, and have uh, from that trip. Just, I think we were just enjoying each other more. At least that's what I remember. Yeah, I had no plans to leave because I know where this is leading. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know the chronology as well. Yeah. Talk me through the decision to leave Bardo. Was hair too good an offer to refuse? Or, I mean, I've got written down here, or was it a good excuse to leave? But it doesn't look like you were looking for an excuse to leave. No, I wasn't. And uh, it's a long, weird story. But the short version is, while we were in the UK, our new manager suggested that I audition for hair. That was how it started. In front of the other girls, mind you, which, again, put me in an awkward position. And then they were like, oh, all of us, oh, no, just this would be good. I just, I never understood it and I still don't. We've got all sorts of theories about it. But anyway, we won't get into that. And I, my response was, well, why would I audition for a musical? If, in case you haven't noticed, we're in the UK recording the second album for Bardo. Where do you think I'm going to find the time to be in a musical? Oh, well, you wouldn't do it, of course, but I think that it's something that you should audition for. 
okay, weird, but all right. So that was it. That was it. I was not looking for any reason to leave at all. Anyway, went, did the audition and then didn't hear anything and thought, okay, cool. That was a good experience. Let's move on with our lives. And then a representative from Harry and Miller's office called me one day out of the blue and said, hey, it's blah, blah from such and such. Uh, Did you get the script that we sent you? Did you get the video that we sent you? I'm like, no, I didn't. And what are you talking about? She said, well, you got the part. Did they not tell you? (laughs) And then that was the beginning of the end. So then I was angry with management and curious to find out what happened. And she said, she, and then I quote, she said, I think you need to come into the office and have a meeting with Harry. I'm like, yeah, I think I do. And then it was the answer that you just said. It was too good to refuse. So to put it in context for the folks out there, we were living on $600 a week. That's before we've paid rent and eaten and gone to the gym and bought makeup and had a coffee or whatever. By contrast, I was being offered $2,000 a show for a national run of this massive musical with nine other headliners. So it was financially sensational, creatively expansive. And when he asked me, Katie, what do you really want to do with your life? Do you want to be in a pop band for the rest of your life? Or are you planning to do more than that? And he kind of called my bluff, (laughs) which was, well, I wasn't ever really planning to be in a pop band. So kind of talking my language, but this is awkward because I am in a pop band and I need to figure this out. So yeah, I called each of the girls one by one, told them what was happening. I said, I've been given this part. It's weird. I don't know why, but I'm in, and this is the opportunity I've been given and I don't know what to do. What do you think? And half of them said, go for it. And the other half said, no, how dare you? That's a betrayal of what we promised each other. And if you leave, it'll all be over. So I had to make the decision for myself. And, and the rest is history. Yeah, so it wasn't easy. It was, but, but uh, yeah. In the end, we, it's, we have to look out for ourselves. That's it. No one else is going to live your life for you. But, I mean, if I could do it all again and rewind and never have had that conversation with our new manager, well, I would have done the second album with Bado. Maybe we would have done a third. Who knows? It could have been incredible. And that was always the vision. But, yeah, it's hard to say. While the collapse of hair was a huge disappointment for Katie, more opportunities came her way, including a presenting role on Channel 7 series Undercover Angels, which you can hear about in the bonus material. On the music side of things, brothers Dennis and Darren Dowlett, aka Kaylan, approached Katie to perform guest vocals on Beautiful, a single by their new dance project, Disco Montego. That collaboration with Disco Montego was a resounding success, with Beautiful soaring to number nine on the ARIA chart in June 2002, by which point Bardo's singles run had finished, as had that of Scandalous. Meanwhile, Katie was back. Beautiful fit in with that late 90s, early 2000s disco revival that had been kicked off by Daft Punk and Stardust and brought to mainstream Australia by the likes of Madison Avenue and pre-Nat Bass Rogue Traders. Robbie, what did you think of Beautiful? Gavin, you hit the nail on the head. Beautiful and the rest of what Disco Montego were producing was, in my opinion, world class. The track was as good as any French house track from the early noughties. I thought, and still think Beautiful is a great track. Everything about it worked. Why it didn't get a worldwide release is beyond me. Yeah, and why it's not on streaming, nor is the album by Kaylin, continues to be a source of frustration for a lot of people. I really liked Beautiful 2, but I've always found the chorus melody quite similar to Lessons in Love by Level 42. Listen to this. I can't stop. 
Gavin and I have shared the same thoughts for the last 20 years, but hey-ho, <laughs> what's wrong with a little inspiration? And um, let's face it, Lessons in Love is a classic pop track. It is. Following on from Beautiful, Katie released two further singles with Disco Montego, the equally as smooth Magic, and a cover slash rework of the chic song Good Times featuring Selwyn, Jeremy Gregory, and Peter Morris. Let's take a quick listen to both of those songs now. did you become linked up with the Dowlett brothers? They had written a couple of songs on the first Bardow album. They'd also toured with us as Kaylin on the national tour and they were excellent producers and writers, of course. So they were tasked with removing my vocals from ASAP and Hit and Run and obviously were involved heavily in the production of the second album. So, uh, again, another weird phone call out of the blue. Shortly after Hair had collapsed, so I went into like a temporary depression, like, oh, God, what have I done? I've left this band now. I've got no job, no musical, nothing. And they called me sh- about a month after that and said, hey, how you doing? And I'm like, yeah, pretty crappy. How are you doing? They're like, oh, we're pulling your vocals out of the, the second bite album. So we've been listening to your voice all day. And I'm like, oh, great. Thanks. <laughs> and uh, and they're like, oh, actually, no, that's not what we're calling. We had this project called Disco Montego. We released a song about a year ago, but uh, we want to get a vocalist on it and we've been thinking about who we get and after hearing you all day, we realised that maybe it could be you. Are you interested? So I obviously said, yes, please. Yeah, I went up to Sydney and they had this track that they'd created musically and a chorus. They said, this is what we have. We want you to write the verses. I'm like, okay. So this was like 7 p.m. And like, so come back tomorrow at 12. Oh, okay. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) And I wrote the first verse to Beautiful in the car on the way home and wrote the second verse over coffee the next morning. Brought it back to them and um, they liked it. And that became beautiful. I work well under pressure, apparently. Apparently. And were you into, you know, you weren't so much into the pop, but were you into their funky disco sound? Oh, absolutely. It was exactly where I wanted to be. It was definitely my flavour. It was house music, jazz music. It was I was right in the pocket with that sound. And I thought, yes, all the trauma was worth it. Now I've landed somewhere really cool with really talented guys. And, yeah, and then we didn't predict how well Beautiful was going to go and that just really blew up. So that was exciting. And exciting to be sort of revalidated as a, a writer and a yeah a collaborator. Although still to this day, apparently lots of people don't realise I actually wrote half the song. Were you happy to just keep being involved single by single with them? They were only ever going to get me on two because the Disco Montague album was an expose of all of these other incredible singers and performers and writers. The Good Times thing was a separate thing. That was part of Rumba. So that was just a collaborative weird thing. Having been established as a performer in her own right, the obvious next step for Katie was to go properly solo. And things got off to a good start with Katie putting pen to paper with record labour Transistor Music. The first single, released in September 2003, Danger was a top 40 hit for Katie, peaking at number 33. 
Katie was destined to have ups and downs in her career. Despite Danger kicking off her solo era, she was in for another upset. Katie's going to tell us now about what happened at Transistor Music that once again destroyed all her best laid plans. I guess in my mind I thought, well, now that I'm out and I'm clearly not a permanent member of Disco Montego, I'm just part of the crew for that album, it became obvious that the next step for me was to then do the solo thing. So... Yeah, that's what I tried to do and had intended to release a full album with my deal with Transistor Records. So Danger was the first single, which went really well. And again, I wrote that and felt very cool, got an APRA nomination, which was great. And then we were working on what was going to be the second single, a track called Take Me Home, which I'd written with a guy over in LA. Production was amazing, was really tough, but kind of, yeah. And while we were submitting our remixes for that second single the record company dissolved entirely along with my contract and my album and everything else that I'd spent the last year traveling around the world writing and working towards I had recorded and written about 20 songs off the back of some writing trips in Australia but I went to London Sweden and LA and New York and worked with writers around the world with a view to creating this album that was supposed to be released through Transistor Records. Essentially the unreleased album, but they're still only in demo form. So that was a huge blow that I never really recovered from, (laughs) I don't think, at that point. So it wasn't just me that lost out. Everyone working there, you know, got the rough end of the stick. Not for the first time, Katie dusted herself off and got on with the business of recording and releasing music after her disappointment with Transistor. Katie teamed up with Mr Timothy, this time coming up with a track called Be Together. The song was initially released as a solo track solely under Katie's name, but when the Australian leg of the Ministry of Sound record label got wind of Be Together, they rebranded it as T-Funk featuring Katie Underwood, re-released it, and it became another top 40 hit. The song also got a release in the UK on dance label Head Candy, the makers of some of the best dance compilations in the noughties. Let's take a listen to Be Together now. Together remains Katie's last appearance on the ARIA Top 50, with the single reaching number 31. Let's go back to her now to hear about the song. I was doing this festival called the Gay As Festival, which is exactly what you'd imagine it is. It's, it's a gay festival, and we're going to do this 30-minute show. And so along with a few covers and then the beautiful track and magic, we slipped in Be Together, and we did this soft launch of this single, XXL Records was Tim Dudfield's own label, very much like I've got my own label now. So, you know, we just got, we did a photo shoot, we got some CDs pressed and and just said, look, we'll just do a soft launch at this festival and this will be like exclusive to Gay As. And then I, I think Tim must have been associated with Ministry at some point, but he basically got back in touch with me about three months later and said, Ministry want to pick this up and release it on their label, but they want to do a rebrand they want to, you know, it has to be like, of course, it has to be a man featuring a woman, can't just be me, and take me off the cover and put their ministry logo on and is that all okay? I'm like, 
um, sorry, what part of Ministry of Sound want to pick up my song am I not getting? <laughs> yes to all of that. I just said, whatever they need to do to make it work, just do it. And they did, and it went really well. It had a bit more of a harder edge, so was it nice to be progressing your dance sound again into something a bit harder? Absolutely, yeah. It was more authentically club, which is where I started. So, yeah, it was great to be really just marketing totally towards club land, you know, letting go of certainly not pop. But it was really simple. So we'd be together, there was virtually no harmonies, at least according to me. Anyway, Tim started to get really excited. He said, oh, I think it's going to do really well. And I was like, really? <laughs> There's much really going on. He said, no, that's why it'll work. And I, I didn't believe him. I'm like, okay. And, um, yeah, then it did. So you just never know, you know. There's some song that you'll pour your whole life and, and, and being into. You'll be like, oh, my God, this is like the best thing I've ever written and no one will enjoy it. And then some piece of fluff that you do in five minutes, it'll be people like, oh, this song ever. So it's really hard to predict how people respond to, to music and to songs. It's a lot of luck and timing. In the 2010s, Katie's life took her away from pop and dance music. She shifted gears, moving into meditation and natural therapies and releasing a series of new age albums. She also had a couple of children. Spurred on by the 2020 virtual Bardo reunion, Katie got back into the studio to make some more pop music. Firstly, alongside Belinda Chapel as Cabell, the duo's third single, Follow, is out next week. Call it a dream, call it a call. I got a feeling growing so strong. You are the light up there. I wanna follow, follow. That was a bit of a sneak peek at Follow, the third Cabell single following Heartstrings and Broken Hearted. And Katie also released some new solo music this year, remixes of that Disco Montego song Beautiful and a fresh track Feel So Good. Let's hear a bit of that one and then go back to Katie one more time to bring it home. The 20-year reunion, did it ever get close to being four or five? It was never going to be five. I knew that. Other members of the band, I think, were in denial about that for a while. But, no, it was clear to me that Sophie had carved her own path and done so successfully, and rightly so. Why on earth would she want to come back to her first job, you know, in the industry when she's achieved so much since then? So that was never a question. Um, As to how close we got to the four... Look, not very. I think there were a couple of good conversations that happened, but then there were a couple of not so good ones. And then we just kind of relaxed it. I think it was the right idea, but the wrong time. You know, Tiffany has a bunch of kids and Sally's got a couple now. And at that point, they were all very, very young. And for anyone who understands what it's like to parent children under the age of five, it's a really busy time. And it just it just wasn't the right time. I think really that's what it came down to. But it was nice to mark the occasion. Absolutely. It was great to get on a call and just acknowledge it. And then the fact that at the very least, Tiff and Melinda and I were able to jump online and do a few butter tracks. And I assume that led to Cabell. Yeah, that's right. So we was disappointing when even, you know, we considered doing a trio thing with Tiffany, but then that wasn't going to work logistically. And and Belinda and I were quite disappointed, but, you know, understanding, of course, and we thought, oh, we can't just do two. That'll be naff. And so we just let it go, I think, for about a year. Uh, and then 
I can't remember who it was that picked up the phone to who, but in fact, it was probably Belinda to me. I think she's very savvy with that sort of stuff. And she'd started sourcing some songs, I think. And yeah, sort of floated the idea of doing it with the two of us. And I, I just kept saying what I'd said the whole time. I'm like, I'm pretty much up for whatever you, you want to do. So if you want to do that, let's do that. And yeah, it's been a delight to reconnect with Belinda personally, but also creatively in the studio. It was quite nostalgic for me to hear her voice again in that creative process. So yeah, that's been a lot of fun. It's not too pop, but it's not too dance either. It hits that nice sweet spot. For people that enjoy pop and dance, I think we we delivered and we were mindful that these songs were for the Bardo fans. You know, it was very, very conscious of we wanted to give them what they wanted, which was an echo of, you know, the Bardo that once was. We weren't able to give them the full band, but we were able to give them something that kind of sounded and felt like what Bardo might have been if it was going to be redone in 20 years. So, And finally, Feel So Good, your own, oh. another solo track. Yeah, I had not even attempted to write a pop song um, and I met this person at the time and it was exciting and I didn't know where it was going. It was very fresh, like less than a month. And that was an honest expression of that excitement. And I think the best songs are those that are honest. I just felt compelled to write about this thing that I was going through and that's where it landed. It's great that you're in a position now where you get to put out what you want to put out. Yeah, look, it's been an incredible journey. I, I feel like I've been really lucky to have worked with so many talented producers and writers and just other people in the industry that have been really kind and supportive. You know, it's easy to talk about the bad things in the industry and there's plenty of those, but um, there's also been some really amazing moments along the way. So, yeah, every song that I've recorded represents a certain period in my life and a connection or a friendship or an event. And, yeah, looking back, I'm really proud of everything I've done. And that's as far as we've got with our Bardo special for now. Requests have gone out to Tiffany Wood and Sophie Monk, and we'll continue to follow up in case either or both of them would like to reminisce about their days in the girl group and beyond. If you would like to hear from Tiffany or Sophie, be sure to let them know via social media. But I think the three stories we have heard from Belinda Chapel. Sally Polyronis and Katie Underwood give a pretty good overview of what it was like to be in Bardo and how it felt to enjoy that huge instant success they had. It's been great to hear the different perspectives on the music, the industry and life after Bardo, hasn't it, Robbie? Yeah, absolutely. Look, a lot of the stories, unfortunately, about the industry as such didn't really surprise me, disappointed me a little bit. But I am glad that the girls do look back now on you know their musical output, especially those two albums, which I thought were great pop albums. And at least we've got that to remember this project by. Yeah, despite what might have happened behind the scenes or the fact that they got no money from those horrible contracts, the music speaks for itself. And what a great run of singles they had. Yeah, absolutely. Like each one of those singles, you know, went top 20. I was revisiting their performance at the ARIA Awards when they sang these days. And look, they sounded great live. You know, hats off to them and congratulations for having achieved everything that they did achieve in that short amount of time. Indeed. Now to hear the full interview with Katie, head to chartbeats.com.au slash Aussie, where you can subscribe to gain access to all the bonus material. Katie also talks about that first dance track she recorded vocals on, her time on Undercover Angels, and yes, the front cover of Bardo's debut album and that robot dog. 
and what it looks like she's doing. We couldn't let that go by. And we've been getting lots of feedback on these Bardo episodes. If you've enjoyed them or any of the episodes in our two seasons, please leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please come and say hi on social media. You can get in touch with me at ChartBeatsAU on Instagram, Twitter, threads, and look for Chartbeats A Journey Through Pop on Facebook. Robbie? Thanks, Gavin. You can find me, as per usual, every Friday night live on Melbourne's Joy 94.9 with Turn the Beat Around. And, of course, I'm all over the socials at Joy Turn Beat Around on um, Twitter and uh, Instagram and Turn the Beat Around on Joy on Facebook. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you soon for our next journey through Aussie pop. Bye for now. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>